Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 349 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Lori Ann Cole. Together with her husband, Corey Cole, she created the classic Quest for Glory series of computer games, which were published by Sierra between 1989 and 1998. The Coles have also created a crowdfunded spiritual successor to Quest for Glory called Hero U, which was released last year after a challenging six-year development process. I also just want to note that the first Quest for Glory game was originally published as Hero's Quest, so just be aware that Hero's Quest and Quest for Glory are the same game. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Lori Ann Cole. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so to start with, just tell us about how you first got into science fiction. Oh, all my life. I mean, I can remember the first books I was reading were fantasy and science fiction. It just was drawn to it because that's what appealed to my, you know, imagination. Like what were those first books that you were reading? Well, I read Heinlein and I read uh, uh, Andre Norton, who wrote fantasy books and science fiction, and uh, McCaffrey, uh, Asimov. I read all the ranges of things. You know, my favorite author when I was a kid was Robert Asprin, and I heard you guys say in an interview that you read Asprin and Pratchett and, uh, you know, oh, yes. funny, funny fantasy authors like that. Yes, they came later. I mean, it, they, they were, you know, we were reading before their time, but then Asprin was very funny, and even better was the comics that came out of his work, which uh, was by Phil Folio, which were took it to the next level. So all of the uh, fantasy books and humor were very appealing to us, to me in particular. Yeah. And so, so you were reading comic books as well? Oh, yes. Came from, you know, read Batman and uh, I had a subscription to uh, the, of uh, um, Disney's comic, comic books, which were very good and Scrooge McDuck Adventures. Yeah. And you were going to science fiction conventions as well, right? Yes. Actually participating in some, helped to run art shows or helped to run the uh, Dungeon and Dragons uh, groups and things like that at, at conventions. Because you met your husband at a, at a convention, right? Yes. Over a D&D game or, yeah, that he was running at, the ga- at a convention in San Francisco. So do you want to like set the scene for us? Oh, well, here I am. I'm coming from Arizona to visit my aunt, and they happen to have a convention there. And so I, you know, uh, I took a risk and went to the convention, and there he was from L.A. had come all the way up to San Francisco for the convention, and we met and spent an entire day talking about things. So that was it. <laughs> and you were already playing Dungeons & Dragons at that point? Yes. Yes, we played a variant, uh, you know, at that point, there was only a few rule books out, so everybody made up their own, and uh, we had quite an interesting variation on the game, which allowed you to really uh, control how your character was customized, so that's what set the mood for how to play, you know, Dungeon and Dragons, and the whole point of Dungeon and Dragons, what made it exciting was the... In uh, fact, it was a game everybody won. 
you're no longer competing against the other players. You're working with them and with the dungeon master to create this magnificent story. And uh, that has so much more power than, you know, any other kind of game. So when you say that you had more flexibility to build your character, what do you mean by that? Oh, uh, just that we had a point system and every points went into creating the character. And uh, that sort of thing went into how we were eventually went into designing computer games is allowing the player to customize how their character's abilities and skills were from the beginning. Right. So then how did you get into computer games? How did that happen? Uh, that happened because Corey, my husband, was the computer person. And he, of course, wanted to create computer games and wanted to get into the field. And um, we went, you know, we proposed a few games to different companies. And it was Sierra Online that uh, actually hired Corey, but they hired him as a computer programmer rather than a computer game designer. And so I had to pick up the mantle to be the game designer. And so what was the first game that you did? Our first game we did was uh, Heroes Quest. Uh, so you want to be a hero. And so so how did that come about? Um, well, Corey got hired as a programmer. And so I proposed this game. We proposed it as a series of four games that would uh, be all about this hero's journey of uh, an unnamed character so that the player could put themselves into that role. It could really be an avatar game uh, going through a series of adventures through different places and different lands. And so then what was the atmosphere at Sierra like when you joined? Well, I was a I was a uh, contractor at the times, and uh, we had a little. It was a good place to be at that point in time for that thing. It was free form, and really, they threw me into the deep end of the pool with no experience and no um, background for what I had to do, which is effectively do a team building. Uh, situation where all the programmers or artists are all together in one room and I more or less had to uh, create schedules and things and keep it on track and uh, do all the writing and things and uh, and I also had a uh, two and a half year old baby at the time to deal with and so it was an interesting time. So when you say that they just sort of threw you into the deep ends like that, did they know what they were doing or was it just sort of chaos and they didn't really know what they were doing? They didn't know what they were doing. They basically had not had any really formal structure for things. And eventually, in the course of it, they brought on a producer role to handle some of that problem um, and to actually start to do the re resource allocations in that. But uh, we basically started out with two artists and two programmers and eventually got a team of five programmers. And uh, we created a game in the course of a close to a year. Now, was it fun working on Heroes Quest? Because when I play it, I, I feel like it was a fun game to make, but I don't it, know. What was yeah, it was. It was. It was a fun time, and it was a fun group, and uh, we had uh, some very creative people on the team, and the synergy of the team 
helped make that game. I mean, we were going to do a traditional fantasy with it initially, and it was going to be very serious. Uh, and then we had artists that were more comical by their very nature. And we had a programmer who had a great sense of humor and started putting that into the game. And so the game evolved the way it was rather than, you know, <laughs> being created right from the beginning. Right. And that's certainly something the game is known for is this great sense of humor. And I don't know how well you remember the details, but I'm just sort of curious about things like, you know, the Three Stooges show up as brigands and there's this magic cat that turns into a giant panther. Um, do you remember like where details like that came from? Well, the Three Stooges came from our uh, our artist was, you know, decided to put those faces onto the the characters. And so therefore we started animating and playing with it. And the cat becoming a giant panther, that was probably me because, you know, it's the, uh, um, I don't play a lot of adventure games and I certainly, um, I'm not fond of the, the, uh, type of game where you hit your head against the wall trying to figure out puzzles, but there's a certain appeal of, uh, a lot of the adventure games like Leisure Suit Larry, of the ridiculous and you do something that and something happens that's totally unexpected like you can pick up a a giant uh, cup of slushy and you could put it in your pocket and that kind of absurdity uh, you know has a great deal of appeal so we wanted some of that you know uh off the wall kind of what happens if you do this you know you shouldn't do this but just check to see. So you test the system as a game. And so we wanted to give the player the reward for testing systems and testing, you know, what, what can and cannot be done. And one of the things was, of course, to you should never kick a cat. Hmm. But we give the player the ability to do so just to see what will happen. And so we reward them, you know. You know the whole thing of a creating a computer game or or a D&D game is to allow the player to feel like they're part of this world and that they have control over what happens in the game. There are consequences to everything you do, good or bad. Yeah. I mean, one, I'm, I'm a big fan of monsters in fantasy, and mm -hmm. one monster in Heroes Quest is the Antwerp, which is unlike any monster I've ever seen. It's sort of this big blue bouncing ball with a, <laughs> a bulldog a bulldog head with four eyes. Do you remember where that idea came from? Yes. Well, one of the things I said, you know, to all the artists, they could create their own uh, monster for the game for Quest for, for uh, Heroes Heroes Quest One. And so, um, one of our our uh, our artists, Jeff Crow, came up with something based off of I don't know if you remember these things the romper room bouncy balls where you sat on the stupid oh, yeah, things yeah. and you bounced and so therefore uh, I had to rationalize how to this creature would fit in with the world and what would happen if you dealt with it so as I said uh, the game was a lot of improvisation and adaptation to what people were said or did in the course of designing and producing the game well and so in the game if you attack the antwerp it just sort of bounces up high into the sky and you don't know where it went and then if you walk over to the next screen then it lands on you and and splats you and yes i i, I mean i played heroes quest 
as a kid, just for hundreds and hundreds of hours. I thought I knew every wrinkle in that game, but I was just watching you, know, you and Corey are, uh, have, have been doing a playthrough of, of the original Quest for Glory 1, it's now called. And you, it turns out you can actually hold up a knife, and then when the yes. antwerp comes down on you, it splits up into a bunch of little antwerps. And it just blew my mind that there's still stuff in that game that I, I didn't, still didn't know about. Oh, yes. We kept putting other things in. You know, we have little things like that. And yes, uh, it's it's the sort of thing that you, you'll you never do until you've, you know, experienced it a couple times. And then you can figure out, aha, how to try this. There's a lot of that in these games. And yeah. you really need, you know, you won't think of everything, but we try to think as much things as possible. Yeah, you know, it's it's just so it's so much fun. And then you mentioned that so you had this this sort of skill progression system from your D and D campaign that, um, you know, I guess formed the basis of the skill system in in Heroes Quest, where if you rather than having a character class really in levels and allocating points to skills and things like that, as as happened in most games at that time, uh, your skills just improve through practice. So the more time you spend throwing things, the higher your throwing skill grows, and so on. Um, and that was the first time I'd ever seen that in a game. I don't know if, uh, it... yeah, we had played some games like that beforehand, mostly, um, uh, homegrown type of games. And what appeals to me about that system is there's constant reinforcement for playing. You always feel like you're getting a little better, even when, you know, you can't solve a puzzle in a game and you're trying to figure it out and you're, you're you're stumped on that you can go off and do something like get your skills up and feel like yeah i'm still doing stuff i'm still getting better and uh it's a powerful feeling it's just really makes you more engrossed in the game right so now while you were working on heroes quest did you have a feeling this was going to be a big success or was that a did that come as a surprise well, we didn't, we had no idea what we were doing and we didn't know what, what to expect. Um, it was a much better success than Sierra expected. They, uh, they had no clue. I mean, basically, as I said, they kind of said, okay, here's your group, do it. And then I never saw any, you know, anybody from, from the bosses until they brought on our, our producer, Garuka Singh Khalsa. And, uh, they let us go. And so when it became a success, we shocked them more than anything else because, you know, they they had no faith in our group either. Uh, at one point, they were even talking about whether or not this was a reasonable game because the, the problem with a computer game is you just can't tell. Until all the pieces come together, it looks like crap. <laughs> you know, you need that music, you need the, the visuals, all of that, and it only comes de- together at the end. So you have to go with a lot of faith that something is actually going to be fun because you sure can't tell it along the way. I mean, I heard Corey say that you think that Heroes Quest sold better than any other Sierra game within 30 days of release at that time. <laughs> Uh, probably the, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the games that they had sold very well, but it was all a matter of timing usually. And that was, you know, that was not true of, of Sierra's later games because when, when the market hit, we were right on, we had the pulse of the market for art and, uh, sound. And so therefore, uh, Sierra was really, really big after what our games came out. Yeah. 
So I saw you gave an address at the 2016 Game Developers Conference where you were talking about Sierra and you said they were the first games to have female protagonists. It started to attract a large female audience and it had female game designers. Yes. Um, and so there was you, of course, and Roberta Williams and Christy Marks and Jane Jensen, I remember very well. Um, at that time, did you um, did you think that was noteworthy that there were such uh, so many female designers or was that just sort of normal? Uh, to me, it, it, since I hadn't been any other place, this just seemed like, you know, this is the normality. This is the way it should be. It, it didn't seem anything different about it. Uh, it was only when people who were from our, you know, the women that went to other companies that I found out, you know, it's not like that in the in the real world. You know, we were an isolated little system. And because, you know, that Ken Williams, the, the person who was the... Uh, founder and and the the boss of Sierra Online had his wife was the creator therefore it was natural to him to, that that women should be creators and and work on these games so therefore that's what Sierra became so did you interact at all with Roberta Williams or Christy Marks or Jane Jensen hardly we were all isolated and we hardly ever spoke with each other I mean, I think I saw Roberta like four times while I was at working there. Um, with friends with other people like Christy Marks and that. But when you were at Sierra, you worked. <laughs> Did you stay in touch with uh, Christy Marks or other people? Well, Facebook, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, they were friends. Yeah. yeah. All right. And so um... – so as I said, I was a huge fan of Heroes Quest. I, I played it over and over again, and I was all ready for the sequel. You know, I had my character. I had, you know, had every stat and skill and spell level up to 100. And I was all, you know, I was just waiting and waiting for uh, for the Heroes Quest 2. And so I still remember this. You know, I went to Babbage's at the mall. And and back then, you, you had no idea of any news or anything. There was no internet, really. There were monthly magazines, maybe. And um, I looked through all the games and I didn't um, nothing really grabbed me, but I sort of picked something out. And then just as we were leaving, my mom said, oh, did you look at this game trial by fire? Uh, it's uh, from Sierra. And I kind of looked at it. And I was like, I don't I don't know what this is. Um, and I, I sort of turned it over and looked at the picture. And so I was, was kind of like, wow, this kind of looks like Heroes Quest. Like, what what is this? Could you talk about that from your perspective? Uh, <sighs> what was happening? Yeah. There? Well, what happened was. Sierra, you know, we're all amateurs trying to figure out what's going on in the world. And Sierra did not actually uh, trademark Heroes Quest. And it turns out that there was a game in Europe, um, a board game, Hero Quest, and uh, Milton Bradley, I believe, picked it up. And the, so they decided they wanted to make computer games. And so they... Uh, made sure that they had the European uh, copyright for trademark for uh, Hero Quest, and so therefore the similarities between Heroes Quest and Hero Quest was too much, and so therefore because we wanted to sell to a European market, we either had to make a deal with Milton Bradley or we had to change the name, and so we wound up changing the name. And we couldn't even refer back to it. It was like, you know, what a what a marketing nightmare. 
We are changing the entirety of a game that's a series, and this is the second in the series, but you can't tell what the first game of the series was. So I mean, it, like I mean, Sierra had been around for about ten years at that point, right? And they had did they have lawyers or like how how did that not get trademarked? <sighs> it's nobody knew what they were doing. It's like there there was no you know a lawyer that was specializing in computer games at that point. Uh, they had no uh, you know they. Because we were computer games and not board games or anything, we were kind of mavericks off on our own brave new world, but uh, uh, we got bitten by liars, you know. Because there was something similar with Quest for Glory 3, Wages of War, where there was yes. another trademark kind of issue? Yes, there was. We After we put it out, somebody else had uh, the rights to create a game. They didn't have the game out. Uh, but they were going to call it Wages of War, and they had that trade that uh, a, a preliminary thing, and uh, then so therefore we were told we had to change the n subtitle of the game, and we did the art and worked to to actually change it, but in the end the computer game the other computer game never came out anyway, so a lot of wasted money and things like that right but so once i figured out that quest for glory 2 was was the sequel to heroes quest then then it was all good and I, I again i played that game for months and months and months and loved it and the first game has a very traditional fantasy european fantasy setting but um you know quest for glory 2 has more of an arabian nights setting um which again is you know is not totally you know out of left field but then quest for glory 3 is is sort of an imaginary version of africa which is very unusual in fantasy games and fantasy literature. I think even today, I mean, there's starting to be more things, but uh, that's a very, um, you know, sort of underexplored kind of setting. Yeah, we wanted to take the player on a wild uh, roller coaster ride through traditional fairy tales to um, the Arabian Nights tales the uh, African traditions and, and uh, storytelling methods, uh, the lives of the Maasai warriors in, in, in Kenya area. Um, basically, it, it's an adventure game, uh, it, coming of age story, which the player really is a part of and gets to experience these worlds, these these lands and these peoples. So, so for, for, for Quest for Glory 3, were you drawing, as you said, mostly on real-world research, or were there other fictional treatments of Africa that, or fantasy treatments that, that preexisted that? No, mostly we were going with the real-world stuff. I wanted to, you know, the whole point of uh, Wages of War is the hero as a person, as a fish out of water in a totally unfamiliar culture and land and does not have any preconceived notions of how things should be and has to learn to adapt to these new experiences and new ways of thinking. And so we drew as much upon uh, the real world, bringing the real world into the game with how – uh, the Simbani tribesmen actually lived their lives in that, so that it's like going on this this uh, f magical mystery tour across the universe, you know. 
<laughs> yeah, and so I, you know, I mentioned that the original Heroes Quest feels like it was fun to make, and I loved Quest for Glory two and three, but they don't have that same feeling of of being fun to make. And I I, I gather that's true that uh, in Quest for Glory two, there's this um, sort of nightmarish authoritarian city called Rasir, which is an anagram for Sierra, and that there was some uh, <laughs> yes. reference going on there. Yes, the whole atmosphere of Sierra had altered. They tried to control the system. They, you know, as I said, it was it was pretty chaotic, and they nobody was in control. And so, therefore, by the time they tried to do uh, Quest for Glory two, they decided they needed to have control. It was, you know, schedules were blooming, and and people, programmers are programmers, and they're very hard to manage. So we needed to to get this system down and do it right. And we're going to go to the to the uh, new way of doing things. And so therefore, we need to have, you know, more rules and regulations, and people have to time uh, check in on time clocks. And all sorts of stupid things like that. And it became really nightmarish almost for me to go into work. It was really stressful all of a sudden. And yet uh, Quest for Glory 2 came out really, really well, all things considered. And uh, it's a beautiful game. Right. You know, I listened to your interview with Matt Barton on his YouTube channel mm-hmm. and it sounds, yeah, it just sounds so stressful and, uh, you know, just mind melting, uh, all the things you had to go through, uh, on these games. And I mean, um, it sounds like the, the technology too was a constant source of frustration because it was constantly changing and you could never, you know, ever, yeah. you could never just like learn to use the tools and then create. It was constantly dealing with the tools themselves. Yes. I mean, here we had, okay, we've done our first game. We're going to do our second game. We know what we're doing. You know, it's like, okay, this will be easy. We just have to do it. And then everything changes about how to do it. And so therefore you're back at ground one, trying to do reinvent and, and learn how to do things all over again. And uh, you have to have, you know, uh, a high tolerance for stress and uh the ability to let it go, shake it off, and keep going because you can't um, let the things you've already thought you knew <laughs> interfere with what you have to learn. Right. And so, so I said, you know, for, for Heroes Quest, I, I, I raised all my stats up to 100, and then I imported that character into 2, and then I raised all my stats up to 200 and became a paladin. And then same thing with 3, I raised all my stats up to 300. So, I, you know, I thought I was all set for, for Quest for Glory 4. Um, and I think I started it. I think it crashed multiple times uh, yes. in the first room. And, mm-hmm. and I was kind of like, uh, I, I have a bad feeling about this. And uh, it was just, I think it was not possible to finish the game uh you could get into the castle and then it seems like just uh uh you're sort of blocked at some point i was never able to finish it well that was a case of there was a king's quest game running concurrent with our game and in development in concurrence and king's quest uh was the the baby of of Sierra. It was Roberta Williams's 
uh, creation. Uh, it was it got all most of the resources would go into developing her games, and unfortunately. Uh, both of our games were pushed back because of technical changes they were making, and they were winding up trying to come out the same Christmas, and they had all gone to November, and we weren't finished with the game. And so finally got finished just before the end of November, which means Christmas is, is kind of screwed if you're that late. But there was they wanted it out the door. And there was no testing period. I mean, we had one week of testing for a game that is far more complex than anything had ever been created before that. And uh, then they threw it out. They threw it out to the public, even though it was horrible condition. I mean, when you can't get out of the first room, how did that get out of QA? You know, it it probably didn't. You know, they probably said just throw it out; doesn't matter, and uh, eh, it'll be okay. But uh, no, it wasn't. See, I didn't even know uh, until I was preparing. Literally, until I was preparing for this interview, I didn't even know that you released the CD-ROM version that fixed the bugs. Mm -hmm. I, I wish I, I wish I had known that. Well, you could always pick it up now. I mean, uh, it is. Uh, Quest for Glory 4, by most people's standards, is, is the highest pinnacle of the series. It really is, you know, this was the game where we put, I was really looking forward to the entire time, because it's, it's the uh, sort of horror genre uh, that uh, everybody loves. It's got everything in it that, that makes you know, good classic horror stories. It's got vampires and things like werewolves and it's got creepy mansions and it's got wonderful characters throughout. And so it's really a shame because in that sense, it was the best game of the series. And it was so broken when it came out that you, people like you never realized that, yes, there was a good game underneath all those bugs. Well, I mean, it had it had this Lovecraftian stuff that I loved, mm -hmm. and um, I mean, even with all the bugs and everything, you could tell there was just such an atmosphere to it. Just, just you know, you you go to meet this character. I think Katrina um, is always sort of um, you you meet her by the gates of the castle, and that that sticks out in my mind so much. It's just like you know. Okay, well, I tell you, you do need to play the CD-ROM because the only thing that that good that really came out of that is that. We got a CD-ROM from it, which we wouldn't have had before if it hadn't been so bad, because they would have just, you know, if it had been reasonably playable, then they would have said, okay, that game's over, do something else. But because of all the bugs, because it was so unplayable, we got a CD version made, and it had voices. And in our voices, we got John Reese Davis doing the narrator. And his voice is wonderful. It really sets the mood and, and the tone. And he can read these stupid, you know, lines that are hmm. absolutely ridiculous with such gravitas that, that it all makes it even, a, you know, another dimension of, of wonderful. Yeah, I would love to go back and, and pick that up. I, I don't know if I still have my character all buffed out to 300, <laughs> but... Uh... Uh, maybe a, I can get a hex editor or something, do that. I'm sure there are probably characters online you can find, too. Yeah. 
Well, so I, I don't I don't mean to make you relive all this stuff, but do you want to just talk about how your time at Sierra ended and you know, what happened with Quest for Glory Five? Well, at the end of four, what just when the when buggy version of four came out, they still wanted us to go doing to the next game, which was the game number five, which at the time was being called King's Crown. Um, and uh, basically, Quest for Glory four did not do as well as they had wanted for obvious reasons. <laughs> and uh, they wanted to cut the budget on us. And if Corey went to him and said, honestly, you, we cannot do a game without, you know, a reasonable budget. And so we had a contract with Sierra for more games, but uh, basically Ken Williams called us into his office and said, uh, uh, uh we don't want to do another game. It will do, you know, you can go off and do your own thing. So they basically fired us and broke the contract with no consequences. And so, therefore, we were left to find some other way to make a living, which wasn't, you know, that much longer. We did find uh, uh, work with Legend Entertainment to do a game based off of uh, uh, Terry Brooks's sort of Shannara um games uh game series book series that we turned into a game uh so therefore we thought we had left sierra forever and i was sorry because game number four was not supposed to be the end of the series at this point there had to there was supposed to be a, a finale that tied all the loose ends and all the characters that we had left behind in previous stories and brought them all together and gave the hero you know whether he was a paladin or a thief gave him a a, a finale and a conclusion that would be satisfying to the player and instead we were left with that game hanging and really thought we'd never ever be able to finish the story and then of course the things changed at Sierra and uh, most of the teams moved up to uh, Washington where there were you know no taxes and things like that and then the company changed hands and um it turns out that there was still a division here in Oakhurst, California that was off on its own and they didn't have a any um, franchise that they were working with. Uh, they had, The King's Quest had gone up, up north, Space Quest had gone up north, Leisure Suit Larry had gone up north and so all they had was a, a role-playing game kind of thing that was called The Realm. And so they were trying to develop that and, and make that into, uh, you know, the, the precursor of World of Warcraft, effectively, with 2D art. And uh, they thought, well, maybe we can franchise this with the Quest for Glory games. So they brought us in to talk to them about it. And it turns out they they wanted to go to market with the Realm 2.0, I guess, but it had no system in it to do stories or quests or anything that would make the game to me compelling. And we had to say, sorry, but this, this just won't work the way you've got it. And so therefore they had to, you know, 
go back and, and, and figure out what they were going to do next and decided to do another quest for glory on its own as a multiplayer game. And, uh, they tried to put somebody else in charge of it, and that person said, I can't do this. You know, you need to get Corey and Lori or back onto the project. So, therefore, they had no choice but to bring me back on. Corey was working for another company at that time, so he couldn't come back because they wouldn't guarantee that they had actually uh, produced the game. They just wanted to see if they could. And so, therefore, for the first time in, you know, four games in that, I became an employee of Sierra rather than just a contractor on the outside. And so, therefore, I spent three years trying to get the final game out for Quest for Glory Dragonfire. And uh, that was actually a really good experience. It was just as frustrating as anything else, but uh, uh, it had some really great moments and some really uh, a, a nice team. Uh, it, it, I'll tell you this: uh, there was they had no tools or anything to make the game initially, so they had to spend like almost a year trying to get the technology to work. And then when it didn't work, they had to spend another year trying to get the new technology to work. So there were all sorts of frustrations in that. But the first year we knew we weren't going to actually get the game out that year. So they put a lot of money into this new musician that they had there, Chance Thomas, to do a soundtrack album. And that is just beautiful. It brought tears to my eyes to listen to that music, done choral orchestral, and just just really creative and, and tells a really great story. And so we had this going in this wonderful impetus to to creating this magical story right so i never played quest for glory 5 i heard you say you, you thought it had a, a very good design you're really proud of the the story and, yes. and the game design and everything and, and the graphics i think or the you know sort of the technical issues were kind of what held it back yes yes it was like uh, as i said we went through the technology three times actually and each time the art which on paper was absolutely beautiful we had stunning drawings you know for, for all our previous games uh sierra is like looking at a stage you come into a room and it's set up like a stage so you have background foreground and and middle ground which is where the players act on and that room is self-contained nothing happens you you can't you, you go to the from stage to stage to stage as you move around in the universe uh and in this game and it now that we were in 3D, you could move across a room that was several screens wide. You could have a huge uh, center of town, which took up, uh, you know, a space of, of three screens one way and two screens the other. And it felt like you were moving through this one large environment with a camera following you along. And so it's a very different feel. Suddenly we were into a real movie rather than a stage play. And so the immersion level is, is that much higher. And we had 
beautiful uh, background drawings to create these these environments and that. But then when when the limitations of the technology and the limitations of the animation came clear, it starts to look really kind of ugly. And I was very you know, unhappy with the final result of the visuals. And to me, you know, the game is as much storytelling is a is what you see and what you hear that create what you feel as you interact with the world. And so therefore, to me, Quest for Glory 5 will be always a little disappointing because it just, you know, especially now with the way games can look, it just looks very dated. Whereas the strangely enough, the original games, which were in you know uh, sixteen color, look more vibrant and exciting than the game that was in three D and uh, all the colors of the world. Yeah, I mean the original Heroes Quest, the the sixteen color art is just gorgeous. I mean, as you're saying, still, I mean the um, in particular the screen of Arana's piece that's this this valley, uh, sort of magical valley with flowers in this tree. I sometimes think that that's where I would want to be buried. I mean, if <laughs> if, if if you know if it were a real place, uh, unfortunately mm-hmm. it's not. But uh, but no, the the game is just gorgeous. Yes, uh, and we wanted to have. That's what we did put into game the game more than anything is just places where you could feel safe and comfortable, rather than just places that were always about doing something and having action scenes and that we wanted the games to have this variety of emotion and and energy levels so that you could feel like you had this roller coaster ride through the game yeah yeah ab- absolutely um we're running a little short on time so i want to move on and talk about hero you so could we just talk about how did you go from um, from the, your whole experience with Sierra to then working on your own crowdfunded game? Well, okay. We had been out of the game industry for, for many years. There were all sorts of other things that came up in our lives. But um, I always tried to keep um, into the game community or the computer game community. And so I had had an online uh, virtual school going on for years of people could you know, uh, take a test at the beginning and get fitted into whether they're a wizard or a warrior by way of something was vaguely Meyer Briggs, your personality test, which puts you in what classroom you were in. And then you would get assignments for the classroom and, and, and things like that, which was kind of like real world put into fantasy games. So, uh, for instance, the paladins were supposed to take three different uh, uh groups that they felt were doing uh, making a difference in the world and and promote those and and the wizards were doing creative writing and each class was you know the warriors were doing figuring out what they they should do for regiment for the day and just different ways of approaching it so then we wanted to make a game about it and we had been working it for you know off and on for textile adventures or um, graphic novel styles, and uh, then Kickstarter started up, and it had this huge, huge, huge success with certain ga- com- uh, computer game series that were uh, 
adventure games. And so we had all the hope in the world that that could be, you know, the next great thing. And a programmer approached us out of Australia who uh, had been doing minor adventure games and uh, said that he would like to work with us. And so everything was coming together at the same time. And we thought, oh, great, we will do this. We can do it. We got everything we need. We just need to make a bunch of money from Kickstarter (laughs) so we can actually make the game. And, uh, well, we didn't make our million dollars off of Kickstarter. And it was not exactly easy to make what we did, but we finally got the funding to pre-do the game. And uh, basically, our initial thought was to make it more of a role-playing uh, uh, game a la uh, rogue-style game, uh, which would be simple graphics, top-down, um, mostly combat and using skills like... Uh, traps and things that could alter how the monster interacted with you. And so it would be much more of a puzzle-solving, simple game. But then we did the Kickstarter. And the Kickstarter, the people that were attracted to the Kickstarter were primarily Quest for Glory fans. And the Quest for Glory fans were not too crazy about the rogue style elements and uh, the puzzle elements as much as they were about quest for glory. And so in the course of making that Kickstarter and the artists and people we brought on to work on the project, eventually it started to really come back to the core elements that made a quest for glory, i.e. that it would have more of a story. It would be about the characters and their interactions. And uh, it would be different from quest for glory because it really, uh, it's, you know, there are other elements of game design that we could put into it. And for instance, uh, uh, in quest for glory, our game was all about, the player being that main character and we very seldom put words into that character's the the, the avatar's mouth because we let the player sort of imagine what he would say to the other characters and and get their responses but for uh hero you we wanted to create a character that you play that character and you won't always know what your character is going to say you just can uh, shape the way the character reacts to other players, whether he's snarky or whether he's sweet or whether he's very smart and clever. And you play the game the way you want that way. So it's a very different feel than the Quest for Glory games. So we were doing a lot of things that we hadn't done before in terms of game design and hoping, hoping that it would gel and come and work and people would enjoy the game, even though it wasn't exactly what they had wanted. Well, right. I mean, one design choice that kind of jumps out at me is we said that in Heroes Quest, you could, you know, if you want to increase your throwing skill, you, you could stand there for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes throwing rocks over and over again. And that that has its own charm, but can get somewhat tedious. And it, it seems like in this new game that it's it's less about do you have the patience to sit there for a certain amount of time training and more about do you want to choose to spend your time doing developing this aspect of your character or this aspect of your character? 
Yes, that was to me, you know, by the time I had seen players throw rocks, you know, a hundred times in a row <laughs> trying to build up their throwing skill, to me, that was taking away from story. It was just a, a basic activity, you know, like uh, – it, to me, it's it's a little like the dailies you do in World of Warcraft just to get it over with. And uh, uh, so, therefore, we wanted to come up with a way that would take some of the tedium out but still give the player the, the chance to uh, uh, make choices and, and uh, make decisions on their own. So, therefore, time became the crucial element in, in Hero You is that you're always running out of time to do all the things you want to do. And that's an important thing. You know, all, all of games are about making good decisions and, and, and figuring out how to get around things and how to do things. And uh, so therefore, we made this one as you know, you don't have much money at the beginning. So first you have to figure out how to get some more money. But once you get the money, there's also the element of, of, of pressure on you to, to accomplish certain things before you run out of time. And so this, this uh, pressure on the player makes, to me, puts more immersion in the game. You're not just, you know, casually entertaining yourself you feel like you have to solve things before the problems go away well right and so so the so yes you're a student in the school and you have to go to class and you actually have to pay attention to what the teacher says i learned that the hard way mm -hmm. and yeah. um you know you have to train your skills and things but then there's also these sort of like conspiracies or like monster quests and things yes uh, in the background and so it's sort of like a, a sort of harry potter kind of situation where you have to not flunk out and sort of have your adventures uh, and sneak around and stuff like that too. Yeah. And there's always something else that you can be doing and you have to figure out whether you want to be more social and spend a lot of time doing your social things or whether you want to be, you know, uh, more into the, uh, um, kill the monsters and, and make lots of money and not care about the other students. All of those are, um, trade-offs that you can make that you can decide on and then you the whole point is that you can replay the game and just the game feels so different if you play it with a different approach to the game right now see i, I i've heard people compare it to persona it's apparently a japanese game i haven't played it but um are there i guess there's sort of a whole genre of sort of school social life management games yeah. that you're drawing on our son played persona uh, the one of the I can't remember which number of Persona was one t at one point, and he really loved the game. And uh, the game was really very fascinating, with a lot of emphasis on uh, school versus what happens after school when you go into the fantasy worlds and you're in the combat situations. So we had initially um, taken that approach to how we were going to design the game, and. Uh, it, you know, it does pull from some of that quality that Persona had. And uh, Persona is a very, very big game series in Japan. And, in, you know, the translations in America are, you know, people love the games. And, I, and what made the game compelling to me is it did have just quiet moments where you were 
interacting with your friends. And so that's the quality I wanted to bring into with Hero You is it isn't all about saving the world. In fact, it isn't much about saving the world. It's more about learning about who you are, who this character you're playing is, and what his past is that brought him to come to the school and uh, how it is affected by the school and what happens because of it. I mean, I think it's really interesting because going all the way back to Hero's Quest, when you open the box inside, there's this in-universe booklet called the famous adventurous mm-hmm. correspondence school and so it's as if you've you, you know you want to be a hero and you've sent away for this mail order how to be a hero course so it's like obvious the the idea of a school where you learn how to be a hero is something that resonates with you very deeply and has since the 80s <laughs> yeah yeah well it probably has all my life i mean what do we do when we play these uh D games is we really want to be the hero we really want to feel like the actions we take make a difference in the world and so in effect that's exactly what we're doing with these games is uh it isn't just wish fulfillment it's more like uh um, in the course of a computer game, when you are immersed in the game, that character is you. It's no longer you playing the role. It's you're here in this world and th- the world around you is, is somehow something that is more than just this screen with characters running around. It's our ability to project ourselves into that character and become that character. Well, right. I mean, in one of the interviews, Corey said something that really struck me along those lines. He said, we want to show that games can make people into heroes. Could you say more about that? Or do you hear from people who have become real life heroes after playing your games? We do. We, uh, you know, like Doctors Without Borders, there was a person that became that. There are persons that have been involved in politics and, and, uh, people that have, you know, are, are really, to me, paladins in real life who go out of their way to promote the causes that they believe in to change the world. But mostly, the, the, you know, even, even the people that don't do that, people said their lives were were changed by playing these games that people felt like that this was themselves this was uh, you know uh, making a difference in the world and and they felt like that's the way they wanted to be in real life so uh, some of my f- a couple of my favorite letters from uh, way back when when we were still making the games of quest for glory were from the soviet union uh, block from across the the Iron Curtain, effectively, where they were, they couldn't buy our games. Our games were certainly not for sale over there because of, you know, they were the bad guys and the villains. But they would get these pirated versions, and and these games would give them hope. It would make them feel like the world was not such a, you know, depressing, horrible place. And so, you know, we didn't. <laughs> we had some great letters from people who pirate our games and you know if it inspires them you know i don't care if they didn't pay for Hmm. the game if it makes a difference in their lives that's the important thing it's like uh, far more important than you know a few dollars off of a you know a game well right and one of these other i think it was in matt barton's interview with you you said people would talk about you know i mentioned in quest for glory 2 there's this 
authoritarian, tyrannical city, Rasir, and that you would get letters from people who are actually living under repressive governments and who can yes. really identify with that. They could, and uh, it, it was scary, you know, in a sense. Uh, you'd like to think that those things were re- fictional. And, uh, and no, there's, you know, it's very real. Uh, and it's something to be aware of that to, the games may be fantasy, but there are real elements underneath. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I was looking at reviews of uh, Hero U on Steam and so on, and it seems to be getting overwhelmingly positive reviews. Um, could you talk about what sort of response you've been getting to, to this new game? Oh, yes. We've gotten very positive. You know, a lot of people were disappointed at first. They wanted Quest for Glory, and they realized it's not Quest for Glory. It has a very different kind of feel to it because Quest for Glory was more of, you know, you are in charge and there's no personality to your character. And so, therefore, you can pretty much project anything you want. But it's very hard to create, you know, meaningful relationships with other characters when you don't even talk. And in Hero You, you know, you create real – Sean O'Connor, the character you play, is a real different character. He makes snarky comments. He comments on everything you look at, and it's all from his perspective, his point of view, that you see the world. And uh, so – Emotionally, feeling-wise, it's it's totally different. We, you know, again, uh, every time we created a game, it was starting from ground one, trying new things and trying to do something different. This one, of course, is after all these years of experience. This is the kind of game that I designed now, based off of all my experiences in other games that I have played and things I have liked from those games. I put into this one. One thing I thought was really interesting is I think there are a lot of Quest for Glory fans who have worked on this game, and you were saying that out of your current team, you've never actually met any of them in person, that it's all people around the world collaborating over the internet? Pretty much. Uh, yes, our core team, I mean, uh, one of the uh, our 3D artists, Al Eufazio, worked at Sierra, but not in a period of time when I was there. Um, so... Uh, a lot of these people, we've met some along the way, but most of them we didn't ever meet. Then they are over across the world. And so it was a different working environment of trying to deal with other timelines and trying to get together and trying to get this creative vision to come together when everybody is so far away. And But uh, it it did. It worked. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm certainly glad it worked out. And, uh, you know, I... I... I definitely admire your tenacity, you know, after all the trials and tribulations of all the Quest for Glory games and then, you know, the the, the process of putting Hero U together sounds like it was, you know, uh, it required a lot of uh Oh, it did. It. It, yes, that's what I would say is that game industry is terribly stressful no matter who you're working for or how you're working. You have to have a very high tolerance for being able to um, deal with stress. and the the persistence to keep going no matter what happens because believe me things will happen <laughs> and you are planning to you're you haven't given up yet still right you're you're planning to do a, a follow-up game right uh hero you too 
there will be it well assuming we keep you know getting funded and keep the money flowing we will be doing four games at least in that series like quest for glory um hero you will involve uh Heroes Quest and and Quest for Glory all let you choose the type of character you were playing, whether it was a a, a fighter, a magic user, or a thief. And uh, Hero U, each game will focus on a different main character in a different character class. So that the first game was Sean O'Connor, and he is in the uh, Disbarred Bards class i.e. the the rogue class and uh, the next game would be wizard's way and that takes place you know of a female protagonist in in the wizard school and so we would have this long series that will be you know the overarching series uh, you know along the lines of quest for glory but in between each each game in that series we'd be bringing out a mini game so that we can you know uh not spend the rest of our lives trying to make the next great big and big, but rather than that, make a small, uh, cute game that would uh, basically mean we had income for that year. <laughs> so we'll be booting out. Our next game will be Summer Days at Hero U, uh, which will be more of an, an adventure storytelling game rather than a... Uh, uh, 3D RPG, you know, um, mega game like uh, Hero U was. Right. No, and I certainly, I, I certainly hope it works out. I'm really glad that this game came out. You know, I was one of the Kickstarter backers back in 2012, and I was excited to see it come out. I'm just, I'm really glad that it's gotten such good feedback from all the fans. So. Yeah, we really are glad that we actually succeeded in doing what we needed to do. I was just curious. In one of the uh, interviews I listened to, it's uh, Corey mentioned that you have an unpublished "How to Be a Hero" novel. Is there anything to say about that? Oh, other than the fact that, in some ways, it, I mean, it took some different approaches. It to it was based off the game, but since we didn't have the rights to the game, we tried to take the basic story of of. Uh, uh, quest for glory slash heroes quest and turn it into something that that feels similar and so instead of having a main character who's a fighter magic user a thief we had a a family of children that grew up together i mean that grew up uh, orphans and each one embodies a different aspect uh you know a fighter a paladin a magic user and a thief and so we were telling their stories in the course of it and even though the game the stories aren't published in some ways that history the way that history undertook this retelling of the story has been incorporated into the history of Hero U. So um, aspects of the other games keep bleeding through into Hero U so that you feel like this is part of the same universe, part of the same um, story that you're, you're continuing to tell. Right. I guess we should make that clear for listeners is that this is not uh, officially part of the Quest for Glory series, no. but uh, fans will recognize all sorts of little winks and nods and, uh, you know, character names and things. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it is not it is not Quest for Glory. We do not have rights to it, but we allow, you know, uh, we, we let anybody who has played the games feel at home and feel like, yes, that 
this is this is the same universe and and the games they they can be comfortable again in playing these games. Hmm. All right, well, I think that's a perfect note to end on. So we've been speaking with Lori and Cole about these games Quest for Glory and Hero You. So Lori, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Lori and Cole for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.